0: Instant Glam. Visit ImpressBeauty.com slash PressOn and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and PressOn Falsies.
1: Yo. Technology. What is it all about? One of the latest ones was can a machine pilot, um, and I think they were F-16s, but I don't know, maybe they were F-22s, pilot a plane better than a human Top Gun and they ran this there were five I think five or six teams that entered the winning team that went against the human so it was a human top gun in a simulator against a machine in a dog fight in a dogfight, fight one on one right one on one the machine beat the human 5-0 not even close I mean one way to think about it is, is autopilot on steroids and it's got so good now that it's better than the best human and the next step on so that so Maverick
0: you know, and Goose are screwed yeah the, the, the Goose is cooked right yeah <laughs> Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech this week. We're back with more AI stuff after a little detour to human composting last week. I hope you guys enjoyed that one. But anyhow, Really, is there anything else going on in tech, aside from AI? You know, what is crazy, actually, between last week's recording and this week's episode, we had a bank run, a bailout. We've had the White House reportedly telling ByteDance, the owner of TikTok, that they have to sell the app or get banned in America. And then, of course, there's also the release of GPT-4, which is a dramatically more powerful version of... Of Chat GPT, which all works out great because this week's guest is on to talk all things AI and specifically what it means for defense and how the technology could really change war and conflict forever and really in unimaginable ways. So, this week's guest is Sean Gorley. He is the chief executive and founder of Primer AI, a security company that develops AI tools for intelligence and the military establishment. Gorley is a serial entrepreneur. He's been at the forefront of big data and AI for years. And he has a really unique vantage point, especially as these tools like GPT-4, which can pass virtually every standardized test, write complex software code, turn some scribbled handwritten instructions into a website. These tools are really setting the world alight, but for defense... What they show is just this rapid development of AI means something very different, especially vis-a-vis the West competition for supremacy with China. So, amid all the hullabaloo, Gorley can just give a very different perspective on how we should be thinking about these momentous times in which we live, these incredibly powerful technologies which feel like they're just kind of coming out of nowhere. And just before we get started, very important programming note. We had this conversation about 10 days ago. So before the news emerged that the White House has reportedly ordered the sale or ban of TikTok in America. So just when we talk about that, please bear that in mind. It doesn't make the conversation any less pertinent, but just for timing perspective, just keep that in mind. So anyhow, this is a good one. So I'm going to stop talking and hand over to my conversation with Sean Gorley. Of primer AI. Enjoy. ChatGPT kind of comes out, what, November?
1: Yeah, I I think it was started in November, right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: And that has kind of set the world alight in a lot of different ways. And in this past month, I've been kind of going around the houses talking to various different people in some aspect of AI. I was just had a really interesting conversation with Stuart Russell at UC Berkeley, who's kind of, you know, written a textbook. The
1: most pirated textbook uh, in artificial intelligence, he will, he will tell you. Exactly.
0: <laughs> uh, he's, as I'm sure you know, really worried about autonomous weapons. And also autonomous weapons, and more broadly, this idea of how do we build AI that we can still control? In other words, that doesn't kind of supersede us and figure out that it wants to do things that are not beneficial to humans. Um, So that was a really interesting conversation. But along my travels, I came across you guys. And I'd love to just get a sense so listeners can understand kind of what Primer is, how long you've been around, and kind of how you got going. And then we can talk about all the interesting slash scary things that are happening in the world right now.
1: Yeah, look, absolutely. So I started Primer um, in 2015. Prior to that, I'd come out of a computational physics background and spent a lot of time modeling um, insurgencies in places like Iraq and Afghanistan and building computational models to try and explain how insurgents would organize themselves and effectively why, th- why they were so hard to defeat. And so that was... Um, and you could do yeah. that with physics? Well, so we were sort of the ugly child of physics until we published Ooh. the work on the cover of Nature, and then we were their favourite.
0: <laughs> when you <laughs> children. say when you say we, who who is we? Yeah,
1: so myself, um, my supervisor, and there was a couple of other people on that. There's about I think five authors on that paper, and I think it was the first time Nature had ever published an analysis of conflict um or a quantitative analysis of, of of how insurgents work and it was really you know the first sort of reaction to that stuff was like go and put that in the political science space yeah yeah, yeah. when and, was you know,
0: when was this what year
1: so we we published that in 2008 okay yeah. so it was kind of like right at the cusp of the sort of you know the big data revolution where it was like actually and data, you were a student yeah. yeah i was a phd student yeah yeah yeah, yeah got you So I'd had a lot of kind of interest in physics systems to try and explain the world that we're living in, right? And Mm -hmm. as part of that, this sort of like brought into a couple of places. One was we were using um, unclassified information around attacks, where they happen, when they happen, and so forth. And so we got into really primitive NLP stuff back in 2008. And the second bit- Natural language processing. Natural language processing, Yeah which has just come so far, like to where we are today. (laughs) I couldn't have imagined how far it would have come. And the second bit was agent-based modeling and using reinforcement learning to start to kind of model insurgent dynamics um, to try and match the information that we're picking up, really trying to get a handle on, you know, how insurgents work and why they're successful. And so that was my PhD work. And so you created that and that kind
0: of put you on the map, so to speak. And that was back in 2008. So
1: how did you end up starting Primer and kind of what was the path there? I mean so after that I mean it was interesting so now now you kind of get enmeshed into um the world of counterinsurgency and I did that probably for a couple of years I, I I spent as a an advisor um spent uh you know a couple of months in northern Iraq with the deputy prime minister of Iraq and that was um where Erbil I've been to Erbil. You've been to Erbil? Yeah. Yeah, a few times. Uh, I used to cover um oil. Yeah.
0: So I did a bunch of stories on kind of Iraqi Kurdistan and their attempts to kind of create their own oil industry and all of that stuff, and yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, yeah, Erbil, I think I was there. I, I remember watching the election results come in. It was the Obama results mm-hmm. with, with the deputy prime minister of Iraq and just being like, this is this is a strange thing. But, yes, that it, it took me some interesting places. It took me to presentations of the UN. It took me um, briefing the young officers that were about to leave to go out from West Point. And, wow. It was kind of like everyone at the time was kind of struggling to say, well, how do we really understand this opponent? And, and, and you know, if you look at it, you had an insurgency that was taking on and defeating the strongest military in the yeah. world, perhaps the strongest military the world's ever seen. And so we didn't certainly have all the answers, but, you know, we had some. And so that took me around all of that. But I ultimately came back and I was like, if I'm going to do anything here, it can't just be writing scientific papers. The theories need to kind of be put into actions with tools. And, you know, it was 2009 and I was like, I don't know everything, but I know one thing that is like, if you come anywhere in the world, you build in Silicon Valley. And so I came out here, I think, you know, maybe had, you know, my two suitcases and $5,000 in my pocket and slept on friends' couches. And I was just like, I just need to be here and and Mm. I've got a, a sense that I need to kind of build. And so that, that sort of started that journey off and started my first company, a company called Quid, and we were visualizing high-dimensional data structures, and um, it was super interesting and learned all sorts of stuff and made all sorts of mistakes. And then we, we sold that company, and uh, it was nice. But 2015 came around, and I'd seen my friends building these big computer gaming rigs yeah. and training these large kind of like image recognition models, and the results were just incredible. And I was like, this changes everything. What made you think that? Well, you, you just, so, so the, the benchmarks that we were seeing in image recognition problems were jumping like 30 points. So image recognition was was in, you know, if you go back to sort of 2010 or just when I was finishing PhD work, my friends at the computer science department was like, this this is impossible. This is yeah. this is something that machines can't do. It's what humans do. And so you see machines doing it. And I remember just shaking my head and trying to like, yeah. like put images in front of this computer. I was like, it was guessing them. And I was like, right, I need to learn about this. So this is deep learning. And I'm like, all right, this changes everything. And so I thought about that. I was like, two things. One was like, it's probably gonna have a bigger impact on language. Not that the images isn't important, but most of us work with language. And the second bit was, I wanna get back into the defense intelligence problem space. I'd been out of that for about five or six years. And it was like, it's time to get back into the defense space. And So So what was Quid? So Quid was um, focused on, on uh, data visualization. So you take these data sets, which could be anything from sort of comments on, on products through to advertising copy through to anything like big data. You'd have these the, all this text-based information and you were like, well, what do I do with 5,000 comments about this product, right? And what we said was actually, You can visualize that, navigate it, and start to see all the different clusters of things that emerge in a visual way. So you can start to get a handle on the narratives that are Mm -hmm. unfolding. And so it was really kind of saying, look, natural language processing at that time was not as advanced as it needed to be, but we can bridge the gap between where the technology is and where value is by visualizing things. Right. Right. And so it was using some really, really interesting visualization techniques to kind of allow people to interact with, at the time, what were cutting-edge natural language models, but today would be seen as being very primitive. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So you started Primary what in 2015? Yeah. Yeah. What was the idea? So the idea was um, basically to come in and say, look, there's two macro trends. One is like defense is going to be a bigger, bigger issue, mm. and the second is we're gonna we should expect rapid performance improvement in language understanding because of what we were seeing from deep learning and images. So those are the two things. Is, you know, we don't know exactly how that's all going to map out, but that's exactly where you want to be. right? And so what that meant was, firstly, it was assembling a very strong technical team to go after those problems. And then secondly, it was looking at saying, right, we think the first place this is going to land is in the intelligence community, right? They deal with text, they're getting more and more text, and this is going to be the place we land. So they became the first customers, and we took... Financing really early on from NQTEL, which was the investment arm of, um, of the CIA. intelligence. They say the intelligence community, but yes, um, yeah. you, can, you can infer kind of yes. maybe who might be behind that. So we took money from NQTEL and got working on automating a number of processes that intelligence analysts do on, on a regular basis. And one of those is building knowledge graphs, right? So it's a, quite a manual process. This person is the same as that person, which goes by this alias. They would travel to this location, they met this person, they talked about these things. So you've got a kind of a graph, right? And you can kind of fill it out manually, but it's very consuming, right? Now, without going to the classified side, we know from things like Wikipedia, the recall of everyone that has Wikipedia pages that should have Wikipedia pages, or put it another way, of everyone who should have a Wikipedia page, how many actually do is, depending on the metrics, about a third, right? And it skews, obviously, along certain traditional biases. So even with things like Wikipedia, where you have a huge kind of crowdsourced dynamic, we, don't, we do a terrible job of keeping that information up to date. And accurate. And accurate, <laughs> right? And accurate. And then it's not just do they have a page, but how long from when information changes does it get updated, right? And the latency on the stuff can be about six months. Yeah. Right? So that's one challenge, right? Building and maintaining knowledge graphs. And that's one that intelligence has in spades. What does that mean? It means like one thing they talk about is you can have a request um, to say, look, we've just had a um, pro-US demonstration in Tehran. What should we expect the actions of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard to be in the next month? And you say, well, I don't know, like I could give you a thing. Or you could say, well, I don't know, what have they done every time there was a pro-US demonstration in the past? And we say, all right. Now, traditionally to solve that, you now have like a dozen intelligence analysts working for three weeks to kind of hunt down all that information, write it up and then do an analysis. With a system like ours, you just go through and say, give me all the events that followed immediately after a pro-US demonstration within 50 miles of Tehran, and then categorize them according to the ontology that I care about. And so now you've got that data in the space of minutes with one person at the wheel. You know, conversely, like if you had to find all the locations that someone's been or traveled to, again, I can go through and read every document and figure out where they traveled, or I can just say person A has travel to location give me list effectively what you've built kind of like an llm or like a large language model but for intelligence yeah so what we've seen since 2015 really has just been a, a continual but pretty rapid increase in capabilities of language uh, or language models and so what that means concretely for us and our customers is, yes, we deploy large language models into intelligence environments to allow them to interact with the data in a way that firstly reduces the time. But what we really say is allows you to be more curious. And for an, inte- right. an intelligence analyst, if I tell you, you know, hey, I've got a hunch that there might be a pattern um, from the Iranian Revolutionary Guard response, give me three weeks to go and think about it. That's very different from, I've got a hunch, it'll take me 30 seconds, and I'll see if that hunch is correct. And as an intelligence analyst, it's not that you don't have the data available, it's that the cost of answering the questions is so high that you don't necessarily connect the dots. Given where we are, because it does, uh, kind of going back
0: to where we started with ChatGBT, kind of Stuart Russell called it, is, is it he, he referred to it as like a wake-up call for kind of everybody, for the public, but also for governments, for like... Oh, the stuff is crossed some threshold of usefulness, and now it's going to change a lot of stuff pretty quickly. From where you sit, does this moment, or AI broadly, and I know AI is kind
1: of this squishy term, does it change war? I think it's good to kind of split AI into a few different buckets, right? And And the first is AI for autonomy. And that's kind of a combination of different things, but there's AI for autonomy. There's generative AI, which is AI to create things. And then there's what I would kind of characterize as, as AI for effectively search. I think when we we think about AI, you're, you're across those places. Now, search can be text, but it can also be images, right? And so you're effectively saying to the AI, look at the world, text, images, audio, and structure it in a way that says, when I see a car, it's a car. When you refer to this person, it's yeah. that person, et cetera. So now if we step back on this here and, and look at how artificial intelligence is going to impact war, I think chat GPT is probably less kind of like relevant than maybe some of the other pieces. I would say first and foremost, autonomy, having systems that can yes. autonomously navigate, move, make decisions like that's very, very clear. And we know even from the early simulations that I think the writing's very much on the wall that humans will not fly single planes better than machines. You referenced this when last we spoke,
0: but most people don't know this. So could you explain what you're
1: talking about? Right. So we've all been watching Top Gun, right? Maverick, yep. and he's back, and he's done. It's like, that is pure nostalgia, right? Like, the reality here is, is, so DARPA's been running a series of tests. They did their first head-to-head competition. DARPA is the Pentagon's kind of tech investment in the research arm. Yeah, forward-looking, um, big defense bets. Like, they really ran the first self-driving car test, I think, back in 2000 and maybe seven six. And so the latest one they did, well, one of the latest ones, was can a machine pilot, um, and I think they were F-16s, but I don't know, maybe they were F-22s, pilot a plane better than a human Top Gun. And they ran this, there were five, I think, five or six teams that entered. The winning team that went against the human, so it was a human Top Gun and a simulator against a machine. In a dogfight. In a dogfight, one-on-one, right, one-on-one. The machine beat the human five zero, not even close. And right. the human came back and said, <laughs> or or some of the commentators maybe said it wasn't fair because the machine took risks that the human wouldn't take and I'm like yeah exactly Right. They said, you know, the machine was able to kind of like shoot before the human reaction. So it wasn't really a fair fight. And he's like, well, exactly. Right. So it's kind of like you have tanks and horses and you're like, well, it's not really fair. Obviously, the tank is going to be faster because it's not a horse. Yeah. You don't have to feed a
0: tank. Right. And so, look,
1: you know, you don't need to put a human in these machines. They can take risks. You don't have body counts associated with them. They've got higher G's that they can pull because they don't need to have a human blacking out. Right? Right. So there's all these advantages. And it's pretty clear the machine is one. Now, they're moving to live in-air tests now. So moving from the simulations to in-the-air, which is uh, simulations are that good these days. I don't think we should expect the results to be any different. How are they going to do that? I mean, I guess it's just autopilot on steroids. It's autopilot on steroids. And artificial intelligence, I mean, one way to think about it is, is autopilot on steroids. And it's got so good now that it's better than the best human. And the next step on so that, so Maverick yeah, and Goose are screwed. Yeah, the, the, the goose is cooked, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. You know, so so that's gone. But then it's it's not going to stop at one plane. It's going to be a, a swarms of planes. Yeah, right, and or swarms of drones, or, or swarms of drones, yeah. and all of this is going to move because, of course, you can manufacture these things cheaper. They're more disposable, so you're going to have swarm v swarm conflicts, and this also brings back to kind of some of the stuff that we studied with our colleagues in, in physics is swarm dynamics. You know, how do you model biological swarms and and all the rest of it? So that I think is going to be really interesting on the autonomy side. Do we know when the actual in-air dogfight, man versus machine is happening? You know, I hope this gets as much love and attention as the AlphaGo match or the I Watson Jeopardy. I can't imagine it will get less. Uh, you know, <laughs> it should because it's kind of crazy, right? Like, you know, we're putting machines for the battle of air, air supremacy, machines will either give it to us or we'll give it to our opponents. But it's not going to be humans doing it. And do we know if that is that happening like this year? You know, or I, th- know? I think it is, right? Like I, I I saw the photo shoots of a plane, I think, that they're going to put the controls in. Right, right, you right. You know, right, that right, came right. out like maybe a couple of weeks ago. I need to bone up on my like, you know, air defense weekly, uh, you know, reading because yeah, that's quite <laughs> that's amazing. Right. So that, that's going to come down. And I think, I you know, that should give us another Sputnik moment um, or hopefully it gives the defense yeah. department another Sputnik moment. And what that really means, though, is you can run that forward. You've got a swarm of these things running by machines, taking on an opponent swarm. And then you say, all right, that's cool. Like you've got software and AI supporting these. And we think we're pretty good. We've got dominance. But then your opponent upgrades all of the swarm overnight. And all of a sudden, they have 99% kill rate on your system, right? So once you're into a place where the controlling factor is the AI capabilities that drive the machines you can push an update like you would with a tesla and all of a sudden your car goes from being okay to being superhuman now your twenty thousand drones
0: that are whatever a thousand bucks a pop or whatever are just appreciably better than yours
1: that's exactly right so you've got defense you're feeling good about defending taiwan you've got all the things and then overnight um, your opponent upgrades their capabilities you didn't even know they upgraded their capabilities they decide to attack and they beat you Right, And everything that you'd done to that point was rendered useless by an offset in the AI capabilities. Now, when it comes to war, we've never seen this kind of speed at which you can achieve an offset across your entire fleet against your opponent because- Over the air update. Over the air update. It's not like you can over the air update the quality of the tanks or your nukes, but you can over the air update the quality of your swarm for air supremacy.
0: VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen.
1: VoiceOver on. Settings.
0: So you can navigate it just by listening. Books. Contacts. Calendar. Double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. In uni, I studied uh, political science, which hasn't really done much for me. But I remember studying a lot this idea of mutually assured destruction, which was, you know, what kept the Cold War cold, because we had however many thousands of nukes pointed at them and likewise, and everybody was like, Well, once you press the button once, then everybody's dead. And it feels like the the competition here, and obviously everybody's been talking about this for a while, especially folks like Eric Schmidt, the former Google CEO, yep, yep. the competition with China, this dynamic feels different than that. And I don't know if how you think about that or if that is are people thinking about that yet because it feels again going back to like the chat GPT Sputnik moment or when you know the machine beats Maverick etc it feels like this stuff isn't far away this idea of being able to do the over the air update and all of a sudden our machines are just the best in the world or leapfrog and then back and forth and back and forth but these aren't like a bunch of A-bombs that we just have there pointed it feels like more back and forth, but I don't. I don't know. I'm just trying to kind of create a meta model for what that
1: dynamic is, and it feels somehow very similar, but also very different. Yeah. So to take back, I think us back 2016. So 2016, the Office for Net Assessment, which is goes back to the Cold War, okay, which is an interesting kind of group from Pentagon, assembles a bunch of AI people and brings us up to West Point. And I'm I'm there, Stuart Russell is there, there's some hedge fund quant people there. It's a really interesting group, it's about 15 of us. And we spend the entire week in back-to-back kind of presentations from us and debates and discussions around what impact AI is going to have.
0: This is in 2016. 2016. Oh, interesting. It
1: was. So we go up there and it's just they won't let us out of the room. And it <laughs> was just kind of going through all night on backwards and forwards. And I was there with Stuart Russell. we there, like it was fascinating. And a couple of things sort of emerge, right? One is like this should be considered as fundamental a change to war as the internal combustion engine, right? Yep. The second is it will touch everything. Yep. And the third piece is this is probably best understood in the concept of offset. And so we presented the work to the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Robert Work, who came in and we briefed him on at the end of the week and so on and sort of started to kind of formulate around this this hypothesis of like artificial intelligence being the third offset. Please explain. Yeah, so offsets. Yeah. So an offset is a technological advantage so great that it renders those without that capability defeated before the battle even starts. Uh, Right. Right? So to run it back, first offset, nuclear weapons. If you have nuclear weapons and your opponent doesn't, no point fighting because I'll drop a nuclear weapon and your entire country's gone. Yep. Second one comes through. So it's interesting. So you talk about allude to the arms race of nuclear weapons. One of the things that actually broke that was precision-guided munitions. And precision-guided munitions basically said, yeah, we're kind of equal in the number of nuclear weapons that we've got, but if I can't guarantee my nuclear weapon hits your nuclear weapon, Mm. then I need three or four of them. If I can guarantee it, I only need one of them. And if you don't have that precision munition, now I've got a five-to-one, six-to-one advantage. The reality is it actually moves a lot further. There's a story from Vietnam where they tried to bomb a bridge. They counted 800 craters. And they couldn't count the ones that were in the water because they couldn't see them. But there were 800 craters around the bridge and the bridge was not hit. Right. And this is in the 70s, right? Yeah. And then they finally got the first semiconductor-powered precision munition that got the bridge. And so what you mm-hmm. see as the second offset was precision munitions and stealth weaponry. And we, we sort of forget that a little bit. But if you look at the first Gulf War, you have the strongest army in the world, which is America, against the sixth strongest army in the world, which is Iraq. And the entire war is over in 72 hours and so that's the second offset and then the third offset then becomes artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence says if your machines have the ability to beat every human in the air then the war is over before it starts yeah conversely if your ai can beat my ai the war is over before it starts but what's different about this is that you can get an offset in ai capabilities that renders your opponent useless overnight yeah. And the thing that should be the wake up call with chat GPT is we had large language models, you know, hundreds and billions of parameters. No one really thought to put reinforcement learning and human feedback into it at scale. It was done and you went from like a reasonably good autocomplete to I can pass an MBA test overnight. Yeah. Right. Like take that into the, into the defense environment. You have a reasonably good swarm to I have one that is so much better than anything you've ever seen overnight. And that's the bet that the U.S. Defense Department hasn't orientated itself around, is that we've seen offsets before, but we've never seen an ability to have an offset overnight. And what that means is as soon as you have that capability, you attack, because you know that your opponent is behind. And so this arms race ratchets up that you can never let your opponent get more than an offset ahead of you, with AI, least they find out that they've got it and then it's game over. So the speed of this just accelerated massively. This is a clumsy analogy, but it's
0: like the app storification of defense where it's just like, oh, I've got TikTok on my phone. I just did a story this week on TikTok You're okay. about this new filter <laughs> right. that turns very normal looking people into like look like models. Terrible for kids, but I couldn't access it. And they're like, update it. And you get this whole new array of filters and it's just like, but like that with AI and the
1: consequences are mass death or supremacy or whatever. Right. Because you've got the offset and once once you're able to get that offset over your opponent, you jump through that window. And this is where the thing comes, right? Like it really matters in AI how fast you get that into the hands of the warfighter, how fast you get it into the hands where it can make a difference. And the issue here, people talk a lot about an AI arms race with China. They talk about chips. They talk about training data. They talk about research and models. The long pole in the tent is how long it takes to go from something that could be done to something that is being used. Right. And what we've seen here is that the US and the procurement cycle – has been set up in a cold War mentality, which says, I'm going to take fifteen years to get my f thirty five. Right. We're number one, so we yeah. we we can operate on our own timeline. And secondly, most of the things we're buying are large capex expenditure pieces of metal, right? Versus we've got competitors that are ahead of us, we don't control the timeline, and things can be upgraded overnight that render everything you've done previously useless. And so when you're in that mindset, which is hardware powered by software, yeah. you need to be able to procure technology on, on the timeframe of potentially hours. Of an app update. An app update, right? Yeah. So you, you look through those capabilities and this is the thing that I think is the single biggest danger that the U.S. is facing is our inability to get the technology that we can all produce here in Silicon Valley into the hands of the people that can actually make a difference with it faster than our opponents in China. Right. And China is is a long way ahead of us in that military civil fusion than we are. What does that look like on the ground? In other words, you know, because when we chatted
0: uh, the other week, it feels like America is ahead in certain aspects. China is ahead in certain aspects. What does that competitive landscape look like, and what does it mean for you know? Because I feel like the other thing is, which is a theme, talking to all these people in different parts of the AI world, is that some people are surprised by all of a sudden AI everything. Some people are like, well, this has been the direction of travel for the past 10 years, since that 2012 deep learning moment, ImageNet moment, where I was like, oh, these things actually work really well, this nude paradigm. I'm just trying to like game out kind of, everybody's been talking about this arms race, AI arms race with China for years, but it just feels like, okay, sure. I don't even know what that means.
1: Not quite who cares, but kind of who cares? Like, okay, yeah, sure. You know, the thing is, about an AI arms race is it doesn't really have an impact until you go to war. Totally. Right? Yeah. And when you go to war, it really matters. So yeah. I was thinking with the the Deputy Minister of Technology from Ukraine. So he came across to DC and spent some time with him. And, you know, what top of mind for him was how do you label data faster for image recognition for the drones that they've got? I said, right, well, why do you matter? He's like, well look, we've got things that are spotting objects in the field, but then the Russians will upgrade that and then we've got to go back and label thousands of more things and, you know, away it goes. If we can shorten that down, we have an advantage, right? And so you look at this thing and, and when you're in war, the inches matter because it's, it's a game where it's, it's obviously adversarial and it's competitive and those inches matter. Now, as we look at this, I think we, firstly, as Americans and most of the West, I think we think conflict with China is a long way off. Right. Yes. It could never happen. We also thought 12 months ago a land war in Europe could never happen, and that's changed obviously, you know, and changed our reality. If you look at the dynamics of the statements from the Admiral Gilday and the other, you know, folks that are <laughs> orientated around decisions, they'll say we have to be ready to fight tonight. Right. What that means is that any day that we were we're sitting here, we may get the call up to send naval vessels into fight in the South China Sea. If you look at the sort of the predominant view in Washington D.C., it's there's a five-year window with which we expect China to invade Taiwan,
0: and that's credible because I uh, you also know people in like the, the military-industrial complex they're kind of in a way talking their book, you know, because it's like oh yeah, of course, so buy a bunch of our stuff.
1: Gilday is not buy a bunch of our stuff. He controls yeah. the fleet. Yeah. The people that are sitting there on the um, National Security Council. They're not buy our stuff, they control the decisions. The dynamics um, (laughs) of this is being driven as much from the US department response to Mm -hmm. a perceived threat coming in from China. So that's one side of it. The second side of it there that comes through is, even if you don't have intention to go to war, accidents can ratchet things up significantly. And as you look at that, I think, look, Taiwan is preparing for an invasion, certainly you can see China is making um, uh, strong steps towards that. And I think, you know, if I'm I'm putting on my hat and saying, look, if I'm Xi, an armchair quarterbacking, I'm like, yeah, this is something I want to take back and be part of China. My reign as emperor is not complete without a reunification of Taiwan back into China. And I think looking at that dynamic of all the things here is like it's, I think, much more likely than not that within a five-year window that there is an attempt to take Taiwan back by China and the US will be, I believe, forced into action. And that's a very difficult set of decisions to make around that. But ideally that doesn't happen. And I think one of the things that stops that from happening is having an offset, which is if you were to do this, you'll surely lose, so don't even bother. Not quite mutually assured destruction, but like, look at at our, we've got the bigger stick. Yeah, assured destruction, the CCP, right? And if we maintain an offset, and AI capabilities that can be credibly posed back against the CCP or the People's Republican Army, then they're not going to attack. If they believe that it's a chance or that they've got the, the jump, then they'll take that window. One thing that occurs to me is that, which is a fact that I
0: think a lot of people don't appreciate about Silicon Valley, is that very from the very beginning, it was kind of hand in glove with the Pentagon and the defense industry. And a lot of those early bets were funded by Washington, you know, kind of going back decades and decades. And then we've had this turn in the past 10, 15 years. I've written about it. Others have of just like, you know, folks at Google writing letters to the leadership being like, we do not want to make war machines. We don't want to help the Pentagon with their, you know, Project Maven drone contract, et cetera. From where you sit, What is that relationship like today? Because like I said, it does feel, it was very hand in glove. Like it was kind of, there would be no Silicon Valley without the Pentagon. There seemed to be a, have been a breach and without kind of judging whether that's good or bad, but just that as a fact, where, where are we right now? I think it's bad.
1: Well, I'll I'll judge it. It's bad. I mean, (laughs) like, it's like, it's, it's like, you know, Ukraine's like, you know, imagine Ukraine is just like, oh, like, we don't think we should have war we don't think we should contribute to like any any light defense stuff. And you're like, yeah. all right, well, there just was a missile that went through an apartment block. What are you going to do? It's like, oh, yeah, but we just don't think we should have anything to do with that. And it's just like what a goddamn luxury to be able to sit yeah. in a place where you're like, I don't want to have anything to do with defense of freedom, right, defense of the values, defense of human life against an oppressor coming in and coming across. So first of all, like that is such a naive view is that you don't need defense or you don't need to have technology as part of defense. So that that's number one. And I think the Valley is, is, is guilty of being naive yeah. about what it means to be a superpower in the world. And whether you like it or not, you are going to need a defense structure, right? The second bit is you don't always choose when you fight, but you choose with the technology that you build, how you will respond or your capability of responding. So I think those are there. I think it has improved a lot since- the maven space that was 2019 yeah i think
0: 2019 was when
1: that yeah yeah. and and you know one of the things that changed was the administration and i think people have become a lot more comfortable with the biden administration in the valley despite the fact that you know pentagon and intelligence agencies are, are not the same as the white house administration yeah but they've certainly become more comfortable so i think part of that is 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 being knocked down and you know, I think people have realized, and Landmore in, in Europe did a lot of that. It said, actually, this does matter, right? And so that's come through. But if you rewind to 2019, it was like you had to have really clear thoughts and and discussions with your employee base, at least they walk out and say like, you know, this is not there. So part of that, I think, is understanding what it means to be in a world where war exists. I think the second, but now though, is not so much can Silicon Valley build those things? It's can they actually get into the hands of the soldiers and the people fighting on the front lines? And this is where we go back to procurement dynamics, right? So we've gotten past the kind of what I'd call social license to operate, it is acceptable to be a defense-focused company. It's not ever going to be the mainstream kind of like building consumer apps. Has it become easier for you to recruit than it was three years ago? Yeah, a hundred percent. Right. Oh, people really? people come in and understand now that there's a mission that is actually important. Right. And, right. you know, I think I think one of the things here with defense is always to say, look, the work that you're doing is going to have an impact in a way that is literally life and death, right? And and that I think is 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 a mission that people want to get in and get behind and it's acceptable now to do that i think three or four years ago it was kind of like you had to be very careful as you broach that subject i i also think people have, have focused on problems that you have a luxury in the valley of focusing on yeah right and it's just like war isn't something you think about in the valley because it's just not present Well, because we needed a better app to walk our dogs That's right. You better have to walk our dogs or or whatever it is. And so but it's also a long way away. Like the cultures of 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 Washington DC and Silicon Valley are a long way away. And you know, there's half a dozen flights a day that go backwards and forwards, but that only means that there's you know, a few hundred people that make a commute between the two cities every day, which is tiny given the sort of the importance of those two places um and our sort of trajectory as a country. But no, I I um I think that's improved. I think the bit that has to improve now is the ability to A go through the procurement cycle, but I'd say B as well, the Pentagon has to also embrace the fact that they're not selling to large defense primes that can, you know, do cost right. plus and that can take forever and all the rest. And they have to be able to move at the speed that the technology is moving at and move at the speed the companies are moving at behind it as well. Not just because it's a good idea, it's because <laughs> that's what your opponent's doing. You know, they're moving incredibly fast. In a way,
0: the Pentagon has to become more like the App Store, right? Like if if software and AI are eating defense, you have to be like, all right, well, we need an update next week, not three years from now.
1: Well, as I say, like you're in a war and you've got a computer vision system that's, that's identifying your opponent and they figure out a way to disguise themselves so that now your computer vision system doesn't work. Well, you don't wait three years to upgrade that. You want that in three minutes. So what's your system for procuring that next generation of capabilities as quickly as possible? Is that happening? That overhaul that you're talking about that feels necessary? No. Uh, and, right. and, and, and and America's got a problem, right? Because you can have all the technology, you can have a technological advantage, you can, you can even be winning the AI arms race. But if you can't get that in the hands of people that are, need to use it, then it, it's for naught, it's for nothing. And I think... We are a long way away from getting that done. And I think it's recognized as a problem, but I haven't seen anything over the last three or four years that have indicated that we've made substantive steps towards fixing it. There was what I would call a lot of innovation theater that happened right. where people were like, here's a $100,000 to like try out this thing. And you see all of these well-meaning, but ultimately groups having like, very little impact of, like, you know, we're engaging tech, but none of that made it into the hands of anyone who was actually fighting a war. Have you, talking about the last
0: three or four years, not seeing that change, what about the last three or four months, i.e. the chat GBT effect?
1: Yeah, so what's interesting now is you've got, I think, people, like, opening their eyes and saying, wow, this came at it faster than we thought, so I think that's one. I think there's (laughs) <laughs> a realization that they need to do something now that these things are moving faster, but I don't think people know quite what that is. Right. What to do. Right. And, and for me, I think that the bit here, if I'm putting on my hat and saying, well, how do you solve for this? You don't, if you're saying you're in the hardware space, because they understand hardware, you're in the hardware space and you produce steel for ships. When a war starts, you don't say, Hey, can you make us some steel? Yeah. You're like, well, we can, but we need to build a factory and et cetera you actually go through and you say, we need you to be able to produce this much steel in case we should ever use it. And you have this kind of baseline of capacity for defense that allows you to manufacture. That needs to transfer across to software. And what it says here is, is that look, by the time you need it, you can't just spin up an entire software division, organization, whatever to produce this stuff. But until a war happens, which we hope never does, there's no need for it. So the way to get around this and the way we've done it in the past is said, we're going to build a baseline capacity that we can tap into. And so what we need is the software equivalent of that, which says, look, we're going to fund the production of X, Y, and Z. We hope never to have to use them, but we need to have that capability and people uh, with the ability to do that stuff on tap should we ever need to. And that's, I think, the only way you can do this, right? Procuring things when a war breaks out Is exactly the wrong way to do this. And so we sat down for that. We had a whole bunch of stuff that could be deployed in having a big impact inside of Ukraine. This is like the kind of real time intelligence. Real time intelligence. For
0: somebody like I'm wherever, pick a random spot in Ukraine. Yep.
1: Being able to have common operating picture, situational awareness of what's unfolding from the multiplicity of data sources mediated by artificial intelligence so you can make better command and control decisions. Right. So we got that. We have the money allocated the money's available, but there's no contract to put that on, and so you go through this kind of like thing, right. which is like there's money, there's technology, and there's need, and there's need. And then you go through as like where's the contract? And so now, well, no, to get a contract, here's the process, and here's how you unfold through it then you then you're in the in line at the post office basically yeah, and so and so like twelve <laughs> months later you're you know you're there, but it's like well, twelve yeah. months like it, it, that's not how these things right. work. so that's kind of the dynamic as this stuff unfolds. I think the other bit here is like. If you make that simpler, you're gonna attract more people to this problem. Cause people, as much as they're building dog walking apps, they don't really want to, yeah. right? No one gets up and says, you know what I want to do with my life is build a dog walking app. I'm sorry for the dog walking app engineers out there, but really like you, you can like fight for the ideological future of the planet <laughs> like oh, you can build then a go dog. Back to duck. Oh. Then, then go back build to- a dog walking up <laughs> That's when you've right. Once right. Once we've once we've fought and won the ideological battle of the next century between Western liberal democracy and authoritarianism, then we can walk dogs. But it's like, that's everyone's going to choose that time and again, right? This is the same reason that people, when there was an invasion in Ukraine, they didn't line up to get out of the country. The young men lined up to get back into the country because this is something that matters. And that story is as true in America as it is anywhere else in the Western world. But you've got to give that technology and the people building it space to go ahead and, and do it. And the reality is it's a tiny fraction of the price of any of the metal that you're building. And it's the future of where like conflict is going. And we honestly, we don't have a choice but to engage in this and run incredibly fast. And we have to win it because if we lose AI dominance to China, the offset kicks in and everything that we've built is destroyed. So is the next weapon of mass destruction, the next kind of A-bomb
0: equivalent, thinking about what this kind of embodiment of what that offset you're talking about, is it like, I don't know, a thousand or a million like you know hundred dollar drones all loaded with just a little payload enough to kill one person and they just send them all
1: you know what i mean yeah and this is sort of like this murder bots kind of dynamic which which stuart Stuart russell kind of um has has been banging (laughs) on the drums i I mean but chatting with him and and you know and and other folks that kind of share similar beliefs and you know look i i get it right like you you don't want to create a a, an ai system that goes and (laughs) destroys your population But you certainly want an ai system that defends your population and that will likely be a swarm of of killer robots they just will be aimed to kill the people that are attacking you and so we're not going to escape autonomy in the weapon systems that we've we've got and indeed it's even a false kind of thing should we bring autonomy and we built in the second world war automatic anti-aircraft guns that tied to radar systems that improve the accuracy tenfold by automating the targeting of anti-aircraft guns, right? Like we've had autonomy. We've had autonomy and precision weapons. What we're talking about is better autonomy. You know, I think there's no escaping autonomy. The question is, how is the opponent going to use it? And how are we going to defend against that? And how are we going to maintain dominance such that, that those conflicts never happen? But I think what does this mean if if you get this, you know, orientated, you move from in a space of building very complex single machines driven by humans into cheap distributed swarm dynamics, swarm intelligence controlled by AI systems. And it then says, how good's your AI and how good is your um, low cost manufacturing to spin out tens of thousands of these things? So think of you know, the F-35 versus 35,000 drones that emerge out and just kind of like go into its engine systems that get sucked through and destroy it. Or think of, you know, um, 10,000 C uh, or underwater drones that come in at a battle group for an aircraft carrier, each one containing enough payload to destroy or, or cripple. And even if you knocked each one of them out, you're knocking each one of them out with a $400,000 missile or a $4 million missile, Yeah. right? So like th- this is where war is going to go. So like, it's going to change that dynamic. But, of course, the one there which we, we, we think a lot about but we forget is there's no war unless there's a desire for war. And one of the bits that I think the Ukraine has taught us is that I think Putin would have been right with his actions and his strategy but for the fact that people, instead of turning around to walk out of the country, turned around and walked back in. If people didn't yeah. pick up Kalashnikovs to fight, if people around the world didn't pressure their governments to send javelins and tanks there was no war to be had yeah and so they won in ukraine they won the information war they won the narrative and they said snake island and the woman with um, yeah. you know sunflowers in your pocket and you know the the ghost of kiev they won that and there was a war to be fought but without that 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 spirit there'd be no conflict and if we look towards taiwan the single biggest thing that china wants is a conflict that looks like hong kong which is like you know, there's nothing to see here. It's an internal Chinese matter. Don't engage. Versus something that looks like Kiev, which is like everyone decides that this is something they need to get in and support. And so what you're going to see and what you are seeing is, I think, a concerted effort by China to win an information war. And the reason for that is if China can take Taiwan without kinetic destruction, it gets TSMC or the semiconductor manufacturing, which controls 90 plus percent of all the advanced AI chips in the world and it controls that piece of it. And so if I'm China sitting here, I'm gonna run a very, very concerted information operation and I'd probably love to have a very popular application that every soldier and um, person had in their pocket where I could control the information they can consumed and maybe distracted them or divided them or created information that said, hey, don't worry about Taiwan. It's an internal Chinese matter. And so they have
0: no idea which. you're talking
1: about. And I'm just trying to think <laughs> if there was an operation where you could design that and put it in. I mean, wouldn't that be wonderful? And you know, we're still debating about whether or not TikTok's a good yeah. thing.
0: yeah, yeah. We live in bizarre times.
1: Well, look, you know, look. If, if if I was the CIA and I had the ability to implant an application that controlled the information stream of every single person in China to my liking, that would be considered the greatest intelligence win ever. And that is exactly what yeah. we're sitting in here today, and we're still having this debate of whether or not we should have TikTok in the pockets of soldiers, in the pockets of politicians, of the pockets of literally every person under the age of forty. The truth is, with that in place, you can't fight a war in China or in Taiwan because no one's going to care. On that happy note. <laughs> <laughs> I care. I, I care. <laughs> but, you know, look, like yeah. people are waking up. But look, this is, this is real. Like, you know, we, we're going to be walking. If we imagine we walk into a world with a hot conflict versus China, how do we best prepare? Because the clock is ticking. And everything from information, you know, superiority through to um, artificial intelligence, superiority through to the speed. And the engagement of the technology sector into that like all of this matters but like this starts now it's not it's not something we can think about in the future right like we are going to be in a fight for the dominant global military power of the planet and it's going to be america and the western liberal democracies or it's going to be authoritarian china and i don't think that's a very hard decision from where i'm sitting and if that's like the thing that's in front of us like Why is this not front and center for America and everyone who can make an impact and a difference? Because by the time you know bombs start dropping, it's too late. Absolutely, especially when they're dropped by you know swarms of drones with with an AI system that we can't counteract and debate. That
0: that they have the offset.
1: Yeah. Right. Well, that's why I wanted to have you on. Appreciate it. It's been fun talking. Thank you.
0: And that was all the time we have. I want to thank Sean for coming on or actually having me to his office which is really funny because there was literally nobody there. It was a Friday. Um, So we had the whole run of the place. I want to thank you all for listening, for the ratings, for the reviews, for telling your friends and neighbors about the pod. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And that's it for me this week. I was actually out in the field, so to speak, on a couple of different stories, so I'm kind of not sure what I'll be writing about this week. It's been kind of a crazy few days for me. But anyhow, please... Have a gander at thetimes.co.uk, or you find me on Twitter at dannyfortson, or you can email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. That is it for me this week. Thank you as ever for listening, and we'll talk to you very, very soon. Bye bye. approaching junction at platform passengers report please stay on board next stop road station ios helps you control which apps you share your exact location with there's more to iphone